Good morning. Like Bevan said, my name is Elliot. I'm the Connection Pastor. And um, for this week and then the next two Sundays ending on Easter, we're going to be taking a look at Jesus. So we're going to be exploring um, his message, his mission. Why did he come? What did he seek to accomplish? And then also we're going to be um, looking at his legacy, the, the impact that he has through history. Now, when we consider human history, what you find is no character is more intriguing or influential than Jesus of Nazareth. He, he completely changed the world. Actually, our record of history is divided into two parts. You have a period of history that leads up to his birth, and then you have the time in history, actually what we're living in, which has been shaped by his arrival. The celebration of his birth, his birthday, is the largest birthday celebration in the world every year. No other birthday celebration even comes close. The instrument that his enemies used to kill him on has become the most commonly used symbol in jewelry and marks more graves than any other symbol in the world. When you think about it, you realize that he never traveled more than a few hundred miles from his home. He never led an army, never wrote a book, he never had a political office, he never had a Facebook never had an Instagram, never had a Twitter account, never flew on an airplane. The people that followed him, some of his first followers, were referred to as uneducated and ordinary. Not a very flattering description. But today, a little over 2,000 years after his life on earth, a third of the world's population claims that they follow him. And it just leads us to ask the question, who in the world was this guy have such a wide impact on the world. Now for us, in the period of time where we live, and specifically the location, even greater than we understand, our lives and the world around us has been shaped by this man. It's been shaped greatly by Jesus and what he did. I mean, even, again, 2,000 years after his time, you know, you, you say the name Jesus, and most people have heard of him. And most people have some idea, some image that comes to their mind. They know that, you know, Christmas is, I guess, you know, in some way associated with his birth. It's his birthday in some way. And Easter, you know, Easter is about him in some way. There's the the Easter bunny and not quite sure how that one relates. But we know that Easter has to do with Jesus. And so most people have heard about him and kind of understand some details about him. But for most, their ideas about him really just kind of boil down to their personal preference, or their opinion. What, what do they want Jesus to be? Who do they want Jesus to be? Who is he to them personally is kind of what we settle for. There's a movie where this is captured really well. It's the movie Talladega Nights. And um, some of you have seen it. I, this is not my endorsement of that movie, but we are, we're going to sit in on a, on a scene where um, Ricky, he's a NASCAR driver, he sits down with his family, it's his wife and his father-in-law and his two sons and his best friend, and they're getting ready to eat uh, supper, and he's praying for the meal, and during the prayer, this question of who is Jesus comes up. So let's take a look at their discussion about Jesus. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden 
fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. Ricky, finish the grace. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings yeah. and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And I'm in the front row and I'm hammered drunk. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Dear eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet. Just a little infant, so cuddly, mm. but still omnipotent. Mm. I don't know how to follow that. <laughs> but it does a really good job of kind of capturing this idea of, you know, whoever, whoever you want Jesus to be, you know, let it, just let him be whoever you want him to be. You know, if your preference for Jesus is this way, that's great. Good for you. You know, if you, if you like him with a tuxedo shirt on, yeah, that's great, man. If your Jesus likes to party, you know, I prefer mine with eagle's wings or fighting ninjas. I mean, it is kind of this idea of, hey, your preference for him is your preference for him. What you believe about him is what you believe about him. What I believe about him is what I believe about him. It's just, hey, you, you come up with your own conclusion. But, but really, like, seriously, who is this guy? Who is this man who, when we look back, we see that, that history has been divided in two parts because of him. Really, seriously, who in the world is this guy? Well, to come to a conclusion, the evidence needs to be considered. This is the first thing we need to do. We need to sit down and we need to look at the facts. What, is the, what does the evidence point to? What does the evidence tell us? Now, like we've pointed out, there's a lot of ideas circulating about Jesus. And something that comes up from time to time, and some people hold this idea, is the stories surrounding Jesus' life, they're really just legend. They took place in a historical setting, but over time they've been changed and altered, and so now what we have today, it's really just made up, it's fiction. Yeah, they, they communicate some, you know, some morals, some values, but, but we all know it's, it's, not, it's not true. I mean, it's just, it's just all made up. It's just, it's just a legend, you know? It's kind of like Santa Claus. I mean, Santa Claus, we know, we know there was a real guy named St. Nicholas, and we know that he did some good stuff when he was alive, but over time, he's somehow become immortal, and he lives in the North Pole, and he's got this sleigh with reindeer, and he, he flies around, and he gives kids presents, and for the kids that obey their parents, they get whatever they want, but the kids that are disobedient, what do they get? They get coal. Yeah, see, everybody knows the story. Everybody knows, ah, oh, this isn't real. This is fiction. I mean, yeah, it might have some, you know, good incentives to get kids to obey you throughout the year so that they get what they want at Christmas, but everybody knows at the end of the day, it's just, it's just legend. It's just, you know, it's just kind of like an, an urban myth. It's not true. Maybe, maybe the story about Jesus is the same way. Well, the problem with that is when you dive into the evidence, it paints a very different picture. It actually tells a different story than this conclusion that, oh, well, it's just all made up. Actually, what was really fascinating is how many details of his life are verified by people who are not his followers and are verified by writings that are separate than what we have in the Bible. I mean, we could, we could, do, we could do a whole sermon series about why we should believe in the Bible and all the evidence for it and all this stuff that points to the validity of it. 
But, but for this, let's just kind of, okay, let's look at some other sources. So I, I've got an example for you. It's on the back of your message insert. I list some individuals. You'll see dates when they wrote, when their, their stuff was written down. You'll see what they were known for. Some were historians. You have a philosopher. You have politicians on there. None of these individuals were followers of Jesus. But when you go and you read through their writings, this is some of the stuff that they confirm about his life. They confirm that he performed miraculous feats. They confirm that he was regarded as wise by the people, that he was a powerful and revered teacher. That's how people viewed him and responded to him. They confirm that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This is something we find in the New Testament. This, this again, these, these guys aren't his followers. They have nothing to gain by writing this down. They're, they're not, they, don't, they don't believe that he is who he claimed to be. They're just recording the facts. They say that he was crucified on the eve of Passover. Again, a fact that we find in the Bible. They recorded that Jesus' followers believed he was the Messiah. He was the promised one from God sent to save his people. That's what the Messiah is. He was, he's the one God chose to come and save. They also recorded that Christians worshipped Jesus as God. Now, this is right around the time at which Jesus was alive and right after he had, he had lived. And for these people to take time and write this down, again, they had nothing to gain. This, they, they weren't a part of this faith movement. They weren't, oh, okay, well, I'm going to add my voice so that more and more people will believe this. They're just recording history. You, you take the time and you go and you start to examine the evidence and you look at the facts. And again, it, it paints a very different picture than coming to this conclusion that, well, Jesus is just like, you know, Santa Claus or Robin Hood or one of these other figures that we've just kind of made up. And he, you know, he's got some moral value, but it's all just fiction. There's way too much evidence pointing to the validity of what he said and did. Again, these, these guys had nothing to gain by confirming these details. So the, the challenge is, if you're going to come to a conclusion on who he is, you've got to look at the facts. You know, yeah, I mean, you could come to the conclusion that, you know, you, you prefer the six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus with his gold fleece diapers. Like, I don't even know what those are. But, you know, if you look at the evidence, you find some very specific details about who he was in his life. Another thing that we need to consider if we're going to come to a conclusion on who Jesus is, is we need to realize that his claims were more radical than other religious teachers. It's something that, that people have done throughout history is they just kind of, they've kind of created this group of there's these religious teachers that have come through human history and Jesus is just one of many. So I mean, maybe, you know, you've, you had Confucius and then you had Buddha and then you had Jesus and Muhammad and then others have come along and, you know, they're all, all these individuals, they're kind of looking at the same mountain. They've just got a different vantage point. So Buddha's looking at it from this angle and he's describing, okay, here's the path. And then, you know, Jesus is over here and he's looking at the same mountain. He's saying, well, this is the path from how I see it. And then Muhammad's standing over here. So they're all just kind of grouped together, one in the same on the same playing field. Essentially, they have the same message. That's this idea that's circling around. They're all just kind of the same, this group of religious teachers. But Jesus did something very different than these other individuals did. So let's, let's just consider a comparison. Let's take, start with Buddha. Buddha, his name is Siddhartha Gautama. You can look this up, read this. These are historical facts about him. His name is Siddhartha Gautama. He lived around 500 years before Jesus. He was born into an incredibly wealthy family that practiced Hinduism. 
After a period of time, he saw human suffering. And when he saw human suffering, he really was kind of disenchanted with the teachings of Hinduism. And so he left his family and went in search to kind of solve the riddle of life. And after an extended period of time of meditation, he obtained enlightenment and became known of as the Buddha. And then he began to spread his teaching. Later in life, he died. When he died, he was cremated, and his remains were spread all through Asia. And wherever his remains stopped, that's where there's now shrines or holy sites for the religion of Buddhism. So he died, he was cremated, and then his remains were spread. He never said that there was a God or wasn't a God. His answer to the question was, it really doesn't matter if there is or isn't a God. That's not the issue. Muhammad, he's another religious teacher that Jesus is sometimes compared to. He's the primary leader of Islam. His, his writings largely kind of encompass what's written about Islam and what we know about the faith. He lived about 600 years after Jesus. So if you think about it in a timeline, you have, you have Buddha and then Jesus in the middle, and then you have Muhammad. There's about a thousand-year gap there. Muhammad, he taught that there's one God, He taught strict monotheism. He claimed that he was God's prophet. He never claimed to be God. That would have been blasphemy. He died at age 62 in his wife's house. And now there's a large mosque and a tomb over the site at which he died and then was buried. So he died, then he was buried in a tomb. Jesus, he said some things that were very different than these other religious teachers. Jesus didn't claim to be a messenger from God or be one who is who is identifying a path to get to God, Jesus actually said that he was God. He, he does this in various places, but one in particular is in John chapter 8, where John's recording a discussion Jesus has with the Jews. What, what we find is they're discussing Jesus's identity. And in John chapter 8, we're going to pick up the story, and this is what Jesus says. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my words will never see death. So he's claiming, he's saying, hey, I I can give life. Whoever obeys my words will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know you're demon-possessed. Now we know you're crazy. You're out of your mind. You've lost it. You've got a screw loose. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your words will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? Abraham's the one who founded the Jewish faith to begin with. Are you greater than the founder? He died and so did the prophets. The prophets were the ones who God used through the centuries to relay his message to the people. Are you greater than our prophets? They died. Who do you think you are? They're asking him this. Who who do you think you are to think that you're better than Abraham or think that you're better than the prophets? And Jesus said this. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? They're, They're making the point that We know Abraham died almost 2,000 years ago. You're not even middle-aged, and you claim to have seen Abraham. And then Jesus says this. He says, very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, why did they pick up rocks? Why did they pick up stones? If you you picked up a rock in that period of time, that was, we're going to try to kill you. I mean, why did, why did they pick up rocks? Because when he said, I am, he was claiming to be God. That was incredibly significant, and that, that really made them angry. See, in their history, as you go back through the history of the Israelites, what you find 
is there's a period of time referred to as the Exodus. It's when people were slaves in Egypt, and so what God did is he came to free his people and lead them into the promised land. So there was a guy by the name of Moses. This guy, he, he was born and raised in Egypt, and he was trained to be a political leader, but then he really made a mess of things. So he had to flee the country, and he goes out into the desert, and he's herding sheep. So God's decided Moses is going to be the one who goes into Egypt and frees the people. He leads them out. So Moses is in the desert, and he's you know, wandering along, herding his sheep, and suddenly he sees a bush that's on fire. And like what most of us would do when we see something burning in the middle of nowhere, we get a closer look. So he goes up to it and approaches it, and he realizes this bush, it's not burning up like most bushes would. It's kind of like those gas fireplaces we have. You know, it looks like the logs just keep burning and burning and burning. This bush just kept going and going. So he's like, what in the world's going on? So then a voice comes to him from the bush, and it says, Moses, you're on holy ground. Take your shoes off. So he takes his shoes off, and he realizes that the voice from the bush is God who's talking to him. So what God tells Moses, it's kind of like the telecom. The bush is kind of functioning as a telecom. What God tells Moses from the bush is he says, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, the greatest empire of this period of time. I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to tell the king Pharaoh, this guy who you know, you grew up with him, I want you to go back there, and I want you to tell him, let my people go. Now Moses, he's from Egypt. He was a part of this whole thing. He was trained there. He knows if he goes into Egypt and says, let my people go to Pharaoh, he's probably going to get killed. So he's like, okay, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense. My life's on the line. But let's just imagine that Pharaoh goes along with it and allows his labor force to leave the country. Let's just imagine that happens. He's like, then you've got this group of people who they're really difficult to lead, God. So what in the world am I supposed to do in that situation? So in Exodus chapter 3, this is what Moses said to God. He says, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? That's a great question. What's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You read through the Bible, what you find is I am is the name of God. Actually, devout Jews who took the Ten Commandments seriously and knew the commandment about not taking the name of the Lord your God in vain, this Hebrew word that captures this idea, they wouldn't even speak it. They wouldn't say it because they didn't want to run the risk of using God's name in vain. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am, everybody there, what they heard him say is, I'm God. I'm not a messenger. I'm not a fellow journeyer on some path to achieve something. I am God standing right before you. Buddha, he didn't claim to be God. He said if there is a God, it doesn't even matter. Muhammad, he didn't claim to be God. For Muhammad, that would have been blasphemy. That would have been a serious mistake for him to make. Jesus, on the other hand, his claims were far more radical. Jesus claimed to be God. Now, a question that I've had and is asked, I've heard it asked, is, okay, well, so he claimed to be God, but what's the difference between Jesus claiming to be God and some guy down on the pier this afternoon walking around yelling that he's God? Like, what's the difference between this claim that Jesus makes and just some random person? And again, I, I've thought that. I've, I've had that question go through my mind, and I've, I've heard it, people bring it up in this conversation. And in order to answer this, really what we need to do is we need to understand the historical setting that Jesus entered into. Now, I'm going to warn you guys all in this room. I love history. 
So I am going to, in about five to seven minutes, try to summarize 700 years of history. The history buffs in the room, you're probably going to enjoy this. Those of you who aren't that into history, stick with me. Trust me, it's going to be worth it, okay? You go back through the history of Israel. What you find is Jesus grew up during a time of resurgent Jewish pride. What, what was important to the, the Israelite people was national independence and religious freedom. And in their mind, those two went hand in hand. You had the monarchy with the kings, and then you had the freedom to practice your religion and follow your God. Those two went hand in hand. What you find in, in their history is they lost this. There was, there was infighting within the nation, and then it was the Babylonians who they entered in, and they conquered the people. They destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and then they carried many of the Jews off into exile into Babylon. But it didn't get better after that. The people are thinking, okay, well, God's got to intervene. You know, this is our punishment for not taking him seriously. God's got to do something. But then the matter only gets worse. Then the Persians come in. The Persian Empire raises up, and they take control of that region of the world. They conquer Babylon. And with the conquer of Babylon, they take over the Jewish people. The Jewish people, they still have freedom to practice their religion, but they've lost their national identity, their independence. They no longer have a king. And so this discouragement and this just spiritual apathy is spreading. They've got prophets who are coming to them, and these prophets are saying, this is the message from God. This is why you're in this situation. This is the hope for the future. This is what God wants you to focus on now. But just this, like, God doesn't care about us. He's left us out here. He's not going to intervene. It's just spreading among the people. So after the Persian Empire, then, then another empire raises up and takes over this region of the world. Alexander the Great, he comes along with the Greeks, and he, he conquers the Persians. Now, when Alexander came along, he actually did some things that are pretty interesting. One of the things that he did was everywhere that he reigned in his entire empire, he brought in a common language. He wanted everybody to have a shared language so they could communicate for the purposes of trade. This language is actually what the New Testament is written in. It allowed the message of Jesus to spread really rapidly after Jesus' time. So Alexander brought in this shared language, but Alexander did something that the other empires hadn't done. He had a, a unique approach to religion, and what he would do is he would come in and he would say, okay, so you've, you've got this God, this Hebrew God that you guys worship, and he seems like a pretty cool God, and you guys have been following him for a really long time, so I'm going to let you keep following him and worshiping him, but you know, we've got all these Greek gods over here, and they're pretty cool, and they're pretty good too, so let's do this. Let's take your God, who's a pretty good guy, and let's mix him with our gods that are pretty good, and then we'll just have like the ultimate religion, and we can all worship together, and you know, if you want to focus on him a little more than ours, that's fine, but you know, we'll all just get together and have this big worship festival of all these different gods. He just wanted to mix it all up, so he comes in, And what that does to the Jewish people, again, they've lost their national identity, their independence as a nation. But now the Greeks are really trying to take away their faith, their religion. And so what they did is they they rose up and they fought back. They were like, no, we're not having any more of this. We're not having our freedom taken away from us in this way. We're going to worship. So under something referred to as the Maccabean Revolt, the people actually were able to regain some of their independence and some of their freedom. Because the fighting was so intense, the Greeks were like, okay, we're not going to be able to control this little region right here, so we'll step back, we'll be hands off, and we'll kind of let you guys do what you want to do. And so what the Jewish people did is they, they went back into Jerusalem, they rededicated the temple. If you've heard of Hanukkah, that's actually what they're celebrating. 
under the rule of the Maccabeans. They went in and they rededicated the temple. They had this huge festival. And the people, they had this taste of, okay, it's like our nation is coming back together. We've got our freedom again. We're able to practice our religion. And they were thinking, okay, this is, you know, the glory days are getting ready to happen. It's getting ready to happen exactly like it was promised. But then this new empire rose up. This time it was the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was very different than anything they had experienced before. The Romans actually came in, and when they came in, they did some stuff that was incredibly disgraceful to the Jewish people. Pompey, the ruler, he actually went into the temple, and and they say that he defiled the temple incredibly offensive to the Jewish people. And then what they did is they said, okay, well, you want to have this this national independence, so we'll give you a king, but he's a puppet king. We, Rome, control him. He's our voice. He's our yes man. Yeah, we'll call him the king of the Jews, but he's really our guy. And we'll let you practice your religion, but we're going to influence and control the high priest, and we're going to control kind of the upper echelon of religion. And, And even though it looks like you have religious freedom, you really don't. So when Jesus entered into the scene, what you have is you have this group of people that have been in captivity for longer than the United States has been a country. I mean, just think about that. And then they have all these promises of God at some point is going to intervene. They, they had had a taste of freedom. It felt like their nation was coming back together. It felt like they could practice the way that they believed they were supposed to. And then that's taken away from them. So just below the surface, all this hope and desire for God, you've got to step in. It's boiling just below the surface. Then you add to this the reality that every Hebrew prophet had taught that God in some, someday would install his kingdom and prove in person that he had not forsaken them. Every prophet wrote about this. Isaiah wrote this. He said this, this was hundreds of years before Jesus. He said, oh, he's, he's writing the desire, oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. God, leave your dwelling where you're at. Come and be here with your people on earth. Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. How the mountains would quake in your presence. As fire causes wood to burn and water to boil, your coming would make the nations tremble. Then your enemies would learn the reason for your fame then we would once again be the nation we were intended to be. Everybody would see that we're following the right God when you come in human form and show your power. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which we discovered in 1947, there is documents in there that confirm that the people expected a Messiah-like figure to arrive at any moment. In Jesus' day, there were communities that at the daily meals, they would set aside an empty seat just in case this this savior figure, this Messiah, just in case he showed up, they would have a place for him to sit. I mean, they were expecting him at any moment. It wasn't like, yeah, it might happen. It was like, it's gonna happen. And this is when it's gonna happen. There's a prayer book in circulation among the Jews that was written just a few years before Jesus was born. And in this prayer book, it kind of records what was most pressing on the hearts and the minds of the people. What was most important to them? What were their desires? What were they asking God for? What you find come up again and again is God, intervene, save your people, send the Messiah, send the anointed one, the one that's going to come and prove once and for all that you are God and you will rescue and save your people. The reality is, is when Jesus stepped onto the scene, Messiah fever It was at an all-time high. The desire for him, the expectation, the anticipation, it had never been higher. 
Now you, you add to that the reality that when Jesus was born, there's about 4.2 million Jews. So Jesus is born, there's about 4.2 million Jews. In addition to the 4.2 million Jews who are alive, you have a lot of people who are referred to as God-fearers. They're non-Jews by birth, but they still believe in the Hebrew God. So they still believe in all these promises. So what you have is you have millions of people expecting this Messiah to come. I mean, a, a, a number of people far greater than the population of Orange County. And they're expecting at any moment he's going to show up. And these people weren't just kind of, you know, it, was, it wasn't just rumor, it wasn't myth, it wasn't hearsay. No, they had books, 39 books, referred to as the Hebrew Scriptures. We now refer to them as the Old Testament. They're written about a, over a period of about 1,000 years. And these books record God's words to the people, his promises. And these promises that he would intervene and save them are full of prophecies that are saying, okay, when the Messiah shows up, these prophecies are telling you how you verify that he's actually the true Messiah and you don't get distracted and believe the wrong guy. Like, this is how you'll know. Not only is there the promise, but then here are the specific things that you're supposed to look for. Millions of people who agreed, these books are from God, these are the promises, and this is what we're looking for. See, when Jesus showed up, he wasn't just some random guy walking around saying, hey, I'm God. He showed up at the exact time and exact place where millions of people were looking for him, and the realities of his life could be verified based on what was written before he was ever born. The perfect time and perfect place to prove that he was, in fact, God in flesh. This is why when Paul, one of the guys who was instrumental in advancing the church after Jesus left, this is why he writes to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth. And this is what he writes. It's so fascinating. He writes this. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, according to those books that we agree are from God that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, why would Paul, in writing to these Christians, say according to the scriptures? The reason is he's saying, hey, if you, you go verify it. Go see for yourself if this is true or not. You know the facts surrounding his life. You've heard the stories. Go read these books that we know weren't just written yesterday and weren't made up. Go read the stories. Go read the prophecies. Go read the promises and, and decide for yourself. Do they all point to Jesus? Does he fulfill these things? He's saying, hey, you, you go look at it. He goes on and he writes, after he says he was raised on the third day, he says, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. And they appeared to Peter and then to the 12, that's the closest disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Well, Paul's saying, he's saying, hey, this isn't just some guy said he was a messenger from God, you know, and then died and is buried in some tomb. He, he came and he lived and then he rose from the grave. He fulfilled all the promises. He, the prophecies are verified in him. And then he rose from the grave. And if you want to verify that, what does he say? He lists people who saw him. He says over 500 at one time. Way more than 500 people saw him in total, but over 500 at one time. What Paul is saying to this group of people is he's saying, hey, you know, get some money together, select a couple people from your group, send them to Jerusalem, and let them go and verify if this is true or not. 
see, again, like when you, when you consider the context of what Jesus entered into and the history leading up to his arrival and then all of the evidence for the events, it really leads us to, you know, there's only a few possible conclusions about who he is. So what are the possible conclusions? Well, the first possible conclusion, once you've examined the facts, is you could conclude that he lied. He made it all up. He wasn't the first liar. He won't be the last. Just one of many to come and deceive. Now, a problem with this conclusion, if you conclude that he lied, that he was a liar, is when you consider the very high ethical standards that Jesus lived by and the fact that that his, his standard of what he determined was right and wrong and what he was living for, you don't see that change. That was consistent through his life. When you consider the life of somebody who's a liar, and we've probably all interacted with or encountered somebody who frequently lies, what you know about them is they're very, when it comes to morals and ethics and the truth, they're very flexible. You know, when they're in front of one audience, they say one thing, and then they kind of morph and change, and they're in front of another audience, and they say another thing, and they kind of keep changing. They keep, their story keeps changing, what they focus on, and the reason is, is they're really just saying what they think the audience wants them to hear. When it comes to the morals and ethics, what they determine is right and wrong, and how they live, and how they treat people, that changes too. It's kind of fluid. It's kind of just always changing based on the moment, what they think would be most advantageous. Well, you don't see that happen in the life of Jesus. You see, really, no matter who he's talking to, and regardless of how people responded, he was consistent. He had this high ethical standard, and he stuck to that. You don't see that in the life of people who are liars. Another conclusion that you could come to is that he was crazy. He was out of his mind. He had a psychotic break. He had a screw loose. People in his time, even some accused him of this. We read that passage in John earlier, and they said, He said, now we know you're demon-possessed. Now we know you're crazy. Now we know you're out of your mind. Now, the problem with this, again, is when you read through his life and you read the different interactions, you find that again and again, Jesus got into highly complex, sophisticated, legal and ethical debates. And when Jesus got into these conversations and when he asked questions and he gave answers and he provided teaching on these topics, you find that Jesus was, he he did a really good job. He had some very impressive, profound stuff to say. And actually, what's even more interesting than just what he had to say, if you look at people who have studied it and considered, well, what was he saying and what did it mean and what are the implications As people have studied it since his life, you've seen some of the most beneficial and helpful improvements in humanity take place as a result of his teaching. Just to name a few, we've seen some of the most helpful advances in fields of ethics, law, government, human rights, healthcare, science, economics. You could keep going down the list as a result of what Jesus said. And it's amazing what we've come up with as a result of what he said and what he taught and the logic and the reasoning that he used. You know, if he was crazy, what happens when you follow a crazy person? It just gets crazier and crazier. You follow what Jesus said, it actually, it it starts to make a lot more sense. People's lives improve. Dignity is added. Value is added to who people are as a result of Jesus' teaching. 
doesn't line up with what a crazy person does. The final conclusion, really the only other option, is to come to the conclusion that he is who he claimed to be. He didn't make it up. He wasn't crazy. He is who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God, the creator, the one who's always existed, the one who reigns over everything, and that is actually who he is. That's really the only other possible conclusion. Now let's, let's get personal with this. What's your conclusion? Who do you conclude that Jesus is? If you've come to the conclusion that he is who he claimed to be, that he's God, then let me challenge you. If he's God, then you coming to that conclusion, that should impact every single area of your life. I mean, if he's God, then what he says on what we do with our free time, how we interact with our coworkers, how we treat our families, how we view the world, how we interact with difficult people that we don't really like. If he's God, then everything he says needs to be taken into consideration and what he says should impact everything. So if you've concluded that Jesus is God, then don't just let it be like a little, little mental agreement of like, oh yeah, he's God. Let it permeate every part of you. Because if he's God, that informs everything. So when it comes to following, really follow him fully, completely, with every area of your life. Don't let it just be pick and choose. If he's God, let that inform everything. For others of you, you might not have come to a conclusion yet. I would challenge you, if you haven't come to a conclusion, get answers. Don't just let your preference win the day. Don't let your preference of, you know, I think, you know, him wearing a tuxedo shirt is my preference because I like to party and, you know, Jesus probably likes to party too. Don't let that win the day. No, do the research. Get the facts. We actually have a free resource that we want to make available to you. This is a really helpful one. It's called More Than a Carpenter. It's going to be outside at the Welcome Center. You can grab it on your way out. This, along with tons of other resources, are so helpful. You could probably read this this afternoon. If you want to grab this, this is our gift to you. But don't just allow your preference to win the day. Do the research. Get the facts. If what Jesus said is true, the risk of getting him wrong is far too great to just, ah, that's my opinion. You got to do the research. You got to get the facts. Again, if you want this, you can grab this at the Welcome Center. If you'll join me, we'll go ahead and wrap up our time in prayer. Father, I thank you for the fact that it was your plan and your will not to leave us in the dark, but throughout all of history, you have been laying out a trail of evidence that points to the reality that Jesus isn't a messenger, he's not a fellow journeyer, but he is in fact God in flesh. And God, I thank you that you don't leave us in the dark, you don't leave us to come to our just settle for our own opinion or preference or hearsay, but you've put us at a place and a time where we can look back and we can verify and come to a thoughtful, educated conclusion. We don't just have to go based on what we prefer. God, I thank you for that. I thank you how that expresses your love for us. God, I pray that we would research this. We wouldn't take this lightly. We'd realize that Jesus will stand in every one of our paths and force us to choose. And I pray that our conclusion on him will be thoughtful. In Jesus' name, amen.